Charting History, Season 1, Episode 4. Valerie Hobson, a wartime film star. Hello, and welcome back to the Charting History Podcast. Today I'm here with Jade Evans, and we're going to be talking about Valerie Hobson and the golden age of British cinema in the 1940s and 1950s. Jade is a PhD student on a collaborative doctoral partnership scheme with Queen Mary University in London and the BFI National Archive. How are you doing today, Jade? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me onto this podcast. Your area of expertise is film stardom more so than film in the 1940s and 50s, is that correct? Yes, so um, I'm researching British film stars between 1920 and 1970 using the objects in the BFI National Archive and other collections in order to investigate how stardom has been created and promoted by key players behind the scenes. So this could be costume designers, stills photographers, um, writers of fan magazines and um, basically people who don't necessarily get that credit for shaping film stardom. Okay, so we're looking at a kind of unexplored history of British film here. Yes, absolutely. So um, there is more research recently into kind of British film stardom. Um, A lot of it has focused on kind of English stars and middle class stars and there's been less kind of investigation into a more diverse image of the British film star. Um, So Melanie Williams released a fantastic book um, investigating female British film stars, but she does note in the book that it focuses primarily on English stars. All of the case studies she chose were English, so I wanted in my research to diversify this a bit by choosing stars who may not necessarily be from England or have a more kind of diverse image of stardom. And today we're going to talk about Valerie Hobson, who I think fits those boxes very, very well, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. But before we get to that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the culture around film in this time period? Yeah, so um, British film has its roots in kind of the theatre, music hall, the stage, um, which is what makes it different to American and Hollywood cinema. So British film in the 1940s, where Valerie Hobson's career began to kind of really flourish, it was, it's often referred to as the golden age of British cinema. So during this time, the cinemas actually closed at the start of the war in 1939, but only very briefly. They reopened again because, you know, the government realised that cinemas would be a fantastic opportunity to kind of promote supporting the war effort in Britain to people going to see films. And it was, you know, the hugest form of um, a most successful form of mass entertainment and during the 1940s ticket admissions were over a billion a year with a peak in 1946 where there were 1.6 billion tickets sold billion and, tickets yeah and even today a tenth of that would be considered successful That's amazing. so exactly and a lot of people went to the cinema you know it, it was it was what you would do it was what people were going to do it was you know the biggest form of entertainment during a time which you know must have been very bleak. So this is a golden age of film but it's coming at quite a sort of turbulent time for the country for the people watching these films during the war years as you say and then after the war years um, through rationing and general hardships and things coming through there. 
does, does that affect what people wanted from films? Um, I think film was considered a form of escapism. Hmm. You know, people went to the cinema to um, experience stories that, you know, could take them away from what was happening in the country. And, you know, there were many films made about the war and actually a lot of films during the 1940s were very highly successful. And when the BFI pulled to um, ask people their top films of all, all time... Um, many of them were actually from the 1940s mm. and some of them, like the life and death of Colonel Blimp, um, you know, a matter of life and death, films like this kind of deal with issues of the war. Let's move on to talking about Valerie Hobson then. Who was Valerie and where did she come from? So Valerie Hobson was um, a British film actress. Valerie Hobson began her career on the stage and she was doing some acting. So she first started doing this when she was nine years old and then... Um, when she was 14, she got a part in a Basil Foster play um, called Orders is Orders. But then when Foster fi- found out what age Valerie was, realised that she actually wasn't old enough, um, she wasn't able to be in it. At the same time when she was 14, she got a part in her first film called His Lordship. This was a Michael Powell film. Her part in this film was really brief. She was in a um, segment where it showed a montage of different women's faces and she was only in it for 15 seconds. But it kind of shows the graceful, smiling face that Valerie became known for. You know, a lot of the photography of Valerie was... um, It depicts her smiling. You know, she's kind of shown as being a very warm star. Mm. So it, it sounds like she had a particular image, a sort of aesthetic that resonated with the audiences is is that something that you think contributed to her rise to stardom yeah absolutely so a lot of the photography of valerie in the bfi national archive for example it depicts her smiling you know she's kind of shown as a very warm star and a lot of the photographs and stills of her aren't serious you know so one of the earliest fan magazines articles of her there are a number of photographs in this um, depicting Valerie as a young person or a child, um, kind of early teen years, childhood photos. So these photographs would have been chosen by Valerie um, and contributed to the fan magazine. So she has some kind of ownership of the way that the public sees her. Was that normal then for the star who was the subject of the magazine, that segment of the magazine, to have some choice in what went into it? I think it depends on the star. Certainly for Valerie, this early magazine article, it's um, an article which is trying to promote her as a star. Okay. So it's referring to her as kind of an actress, you know, but the article written by Max Breen is listing reasons as to why Valerie should be awarded the reader's attention. So okay. there are a number of reasons, for example... Um, they think that she's going to contribute to the prestige of British films, which is really interesting. Um, the last reason that they give is, I want to. So there's this kind of sense of ownership of the fan magazine writer in who deserves to be called a star. And so Valerie chose a number of photographs to be contributed to this. Um, you know, a lot of them, obviously, these photographs, the only way to get hold of them is for the fan magazine writer to get them from mm. the star directly. Um so she would have had some say in um, what images she would distribute to the writers. Absolutely. Yeah. And we can kind of see that as agency. And one way in which the star is able to 
have some control over the image. There are a lot of ways in which we can understand how a star image has been created and formulated. The fan magazine is one of these, but we can't dismiss the agency that the star themselves has. For example, in photography, if they have choice over the ways in which they are posed. So fan magazines at this time, are they a large cultural output? Because I, I, something that I've never really thought of before is the um, sort of cultural milieu like around film. I think I've always thought of this golden age of film as being about the films itself, but it sounds to me like there's much more being produced sort of around film stars, around what's coming out in films in a way that I've not thought about before. So were fan magazines very prolific at the time? Absolutely. Both America and Britain produced a number of fan magazines and they all feature articles and films but also articles on the stars and these were the ways before the days of social media Mm. where the reader could feel close to the star. You know, they'd find out about the star's personal lives and, you know, fan magazines would include quizzes and games and things like that Um, and it's a way that the fan magazine would be able to engage with their favourite stars. So when we think about British film, British film kind of originally focused on the films themselves, but around kind of 1928, there starts to be the rise of the film star. Okay. You start to get, especially in the fan magazine, more focus on the film star's face. You know, that's what people are going to the cinema to see. So it's about the people, not the films suddenly. Absolutely, yeah. And you see that reflected in the fan magazines as well, where articles start to move away from a focus on the films and focus on the stars instead. And you see this in film posters as well. You know, the posters that are coming out later, they start to feature more of the star's face, and that is the appeal. And especially when we think about women film stars, you know, there's more close-ups, so there's more focus on using stars for advertising, mm. um, especially products like um, Lux Soap and Ovaltine. Um, you know, stars are starting to play a really big part in selling, you know, they're used as a commodity, and we see that in the fan magazines as well. So this is a sort of a very early instance of celebrity culture, almost. Celebrity culture and the way that we now see celebrity culture as ingrained within capitalism, advertising. Uh, you see this sort of as really originating in this time period. Absolutely, yeah. We, we start to see the ways in which stars are used to draw the public in. Right. So... Let's go back to Valerie then. Her career is starting to take off. Um, she's getting these minor roles in f- some films and her image is starting to captivate audiences. And then by the sounds of it, she's able to promote herself using this image, this aesthetic, through things like fan magazines. Where does she go next in her career? So obviously we still have this kind of um, context of the war. Mm. You know, um, Valerie... So. So Valerie spent a year and a half working in Universal. She'd made three British films and then, you know, she went off to have a contract with Universal in Hollywood. She was Mm. starring in a lot of the horror films. She was in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, And then she noted that in one of the fan magazines that she felt homesick and heard that British film was up and coming. So she moved back to the UK and she started, her career really started to take off the British fan magazine started to really engage with her as a film star. So Valerie, at this time, she started to write a lot of articles and contribute to a lot of articles in the fan magazine um, in relation to the war. So she started to 
for example, advise readers on how they could still have a good Christmas by cheaply acquiring Christmas gifts for loved ones. So her career was really successful. She starts to become a huge star within the British fan magazine. And we see that by the way that she's used on the fan magazine covers to advertise the magazine themselves. And I would argue that when a star is used on the cover of a magazine, they're really very much a selling point mm. at this point for drawing readers in because, you know, that's the main way in which the magazine is going to kind of appeal to the reader when there's competition between various fan magazines. It almost flips the narrative, right? You've gone from the magazine selling the star to the star selling the magazine. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So... Valerie is starting to write articles about coping with the, the effects of war on domestic life. How do you see the relationship between Valerie and the fan magazines at this time, now that her career is in full swing and she's now sort of a major selling point for the magazines? How does that relationship work out? So during the war, fan magazines started to kind of use female film stars as a way to promote British patriotism. Mm. The fan magazines are writing about her in terms of providing information to the reader on what she's doing to support the war effort. Mm. So, for example, um, there's one magazine, there's one issue in Picture Goer which tells the reader how she, how Valerie has been going around the country recruiting um, women to work during the war and okay. to support that war effort, and also how she started a Tanks for Russia fund at Denham Studios and she's finding ways to raise money for that. Mm. So the fan magazines are really kind of engaging with what is Valerie doing to support the war and then using that to convey to the reader, look at all these fantastic things that she's doing. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, she's still working, she's still carrying out domestic duties and yet she's supporting the war. And so kind of suggesting to the reader all these things that she's doing, she becomes a role model mm. and film stars were often used like this. And in contrast, stars like Vivian Lee, um, who went off to America and had a very successful career in Hollywood, the fan magazines are very critical of this. And so they're using that in order to say British film stars should stay in Britain and support the war effort. So that's what she's up to in the fan magazines. And this is the image that is being promoted of um, a British film star working on behalf of the British war effort. Outside of the world of fan magazines, though, what else is Valerie seen to be doing at this time? So in the fan magazines like Picture Girl, she's kind of seen to be taking on a very active role in the war effort. You know, she's um, doing all these things actively. She's kind of, she's doing a lot of work during the war. She's going around the country. She's very active in supporting the war effort, in raising mm. funds, in um, knitting bed jackets, for example. In, the, um, in magazines such as The Tatler and Bystander, She's similarly used to promote supporting the war effort, but done so through a very domestic lens. You know, th there's photographs of her carrying out duties with captions that show her, you know, she's growing produce to support, you know, when there's rationing going on. Mm. She's growing produce in order to have food. Um, it notes that she's feeding her husband. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> suggested as as a, uh, exactly <laughs> suggested as a very... Um, a very difficult task. Um, <laughs> um, Maybe he wouldn't sit still. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's also 
She's also shown um, cycling. So Valerie, as many fan magazine readers will know, she had a love of motoring. She loved to drive cars at high speed. That mm. was one of her hobbies. So Valerie is shown to be cycling instead in this magazine. And it notes that she's economising on petrol. Mm. And that's a big shift in her image, surely, from this sort of um, very exciting, fast-paced driving life towards this far more... Um, uh, careful cycle. Obviously, as you say, the the onus is on the idea of conserving resources. But it, was that a bit of a reorientation for Valerie to change her image in this way? Absolutely, and I think it's just a perspective of the magazine and the kind of duties that it was promoting to the reader as what one should carry out during the war. Right. For example, you know, she's she's doing all these domestic duties. She's not shown actively taking part in kind of raising funds and also in these photographs you know she's shown to be alone and so it kind of suggests that she's home alone carrying out these duties while her husband Anthony Havelock Allen at the time Mm. who was a film producer and so it's presumed that he's you know working Valerie notes as well she's still working while she's doing all of these duties as well as looking after her husband and it's suggesting that she's carrying these out, but it's showing her home alone and suggesting that there's a very gendered domestic mm. side to, to the kind of things that she's doing during the war. So another point is Picturegoer actually writes at one point that Valerie Hobson was offered a contract with David Selznick in America, known for creating um, Gone with the Wind, right. a very successful director. And the fan magazine notes that Valerie Hobson could be the next Vivian Leigh. And then in a later issue, um, it focuses on this kind of, on all these duties that Valerie is carrying out during the war. And then it notes that Valerie has sacrificed this opportunity to go and work in America, in Mm. Hollywood, in order to kind of stay in Britain and support the war effort. So basically the magazines and the fan magazines at this time are telling their readers and using Valerie Hobson to promote to their readers that the duties carried out by a British person should be to put the needs of the country first. Mm. And this kind of element of sacrifice is, you know, prevalent in all all the kind of forms of uh, fan magazine and magazines. It's just different in the ways in which they use Valerie to promote that. You've got the fan magazines promoting her, carrying out very active war work, whereas the other magazines like Tatler and Bystander they're promoting Valerie as carrying out domestic duties, but doing so, you know, through photographs where she's smiling. She's very happy about her sacrifices. Mm. And that, you know, it acts as a form of morale to the reader, even though they're having to sacrifice stuff because of the bleakness of war. They're doing so in a way which suggests, you know, you can still give up things, but still enjoy it. Live a simple life. That is a kind of um, way to be happy during this time. So... This is how Valerie's being viewed on one side of the Atlantic. And you mentioned earlier that she essentially sacrificed the potential for this career in the US around this time. How is she viewed on the other side of the world in the United States? So in Hollywood, um, despite her spending kind of about 18 months working in, with Universal, once she'd left and gone back to England, she didn't really have any status in America so the fan magazines don't really engage with her in Hollywood. In fact, when they do, they actually um, misname her hometown in Ireland 
and they actually often refer to her as an English star or, you know, sometimes as an actress. And, you know, whether whether a fan magazine uses the word actress or star kind of tells you a little bit about how they view this person. Right. So it, star would be uh, at the top and actress is I think less it's, thought of? Or? Yeah, and I think it's kind of just this image of British film history. You know, it kind of has this background in the stage and there's kind of connotations associated with the word actress that suggest, you know, this kind of theatrical prowess. Mm. And I think there's many ways in which we can see how the fan magazines were engaging with her. But I think to not refer to her as a star, which they may do for someone like Rita Hayworth, for example, it tells you a lot. But in Hollywood, in the fan magazines, she's not really presented through any of them you know she she doesn't really receive any substantial mention um shortly after great expectations came out mm. it was named in photo play the american fan magazine as kind of the film of the month and they had um a few which, which she was in she was in great expectations she was she yes. played um, the older stella um and a few actresses and actors within this were named as kind of the stars of the month you know, stars who were in Great Expectations, and Valerie Hobson was named as one of them. Now, interestingly, a few years later in the early 1950s, Photo Player revisited this film, and they actually said that Jean Simmons, who plays the young Estella, that she outshines Valerie Hobson. Interesting. Yeah, especially because originally, when the, these stars were named, Jean Simmons was not named as one of the stars of the month. Mm. And so we can kind of see this as perhaps, you know, as Jean Simmons has gained a lot of attention, you know, she's gotten older, she's been in a lot of fantastic films, all, all of a sudden, photoplay rewriting is kind of... They're rewriting the, the narrative, essentially, to Absolutely. focus around who is now the star for the Americans. Is that... Absolutely, okay. yeah. And then photoplay's only real substantial piece on Valerie Hobson um was an article about rationing and mm. it's an interview with Valerie which talks about access to makeup. They kind of engage with, you know, women's work during the war. And Valerie is talking about how, you know, even though she's a film star, she's expected to maintain a type of glamour, a type of, you know, like kind of upkept appearance. Mm. She says that, you know, she can't be afforded special privileges just because she's a film star. You know, makeup is rationed, products are, ma are rationed. And so she has to kind of give these up. And the response from the American fan magazine, the, um, the person writing this article, um, says that in America, if one product isn't available, it's not a matter of having no products at all. It's a matter of using something else. And so they ask Valerie um, about how... You know, don't you think that the privations of the war have um, affected how women look during this time? You know, they've they've kind of women are aging and women are, are looking slightly kind of rough and ragged after the war, which is very understandable. They've just been through a world war. You think so, yeah? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and Valerie comes back with this brilliantly humble response, which tells this person um, how to her it's her country women's spirit that soften the, you know, any ageing lines. It's the country women's spirit that give them their beauty. And this is a fantastic response from Valerie, which kind of supports women during this time where, you know, where rationing products is seen as a real sacrifice. Mm. It's seen as supporting the country, and it's that what makes them beautiful. And it's really interesting when we consider this contrasting glamour from America, from Hollywood, and their stars, 
to Britain and their styles and the mm. kind of way that women are viewed. And so Valerie's kind of turning this real insult in photo play into something that really tells the readers of um, of the American fan magazine what the experiences of British women were during this time and what is important. And again, it reinforces this idea from the British fan magazine that stars are promoted as icons mm. and emblems for supporting the war effort by their sacrifice, you know, they are seen as kind of equal to the to the public, whereas perhaps, you know, the American Hollywood stars, it's their glamour, you know, they're promoted more through kind of glamour and mm. even during the war and, you know, cinema there is perhaps seen as a spectacle and more of a, an escape. So do you see, and I appreciate this is quite a broad question, a increasing divergence between the two film industries based on the one side on this idea of glamour and aesthetics in, in, the, in the States and in Britain this sort of increasingly it sounds like they're focusing more on Valerie's personality and uh, relatability than her just her image is that sort of a divergence between the two that is increasing at this time or that even exists? I think the fan magazine both in America and Britain can be regarded in many ways because the main appeal of the fan magazine was that it presented stars as kind of, you know, idols, as Mm. kind of goddesses, um, whilst also making them relatable. So there's this real kind of diverse image, you know, stars are are seen as glamorous, Mm. beautiful, you know, aspirational, yet they're also seen as very relatable subjects. You know, the, the reason that, people like to read the fan magazines is because they might see images and they might see photos of the stars' homes, for example, and mm. um, they might learn about their personal lives. And so that is kind of a commonality between the British and the American fan magazines. I think there's a real contrast in the ways in which they deal with Valerie Hobson. Mm. And there's many reasons why that could be. You've mentioned a couple of times about Valerie being from Ireland, but misclassed as an English film star, for example, in the American magazines. And you also said at the very beginning that you're interested in telling the stories of um, the those film stars who came from less privileged backgrounds, for example, and sort of bringing in these dynamics of gender and class into these kinds of stories. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit more? About Valerie's, um, her own background, her own life story, and how that maybe affected her stardom? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Valerie is one of four stars I'm looking at, and I'm kind of choosing stars that are from various backgrounds. For example, Moira Shearer was Scottish. Um, Jessie Matthews, while she was an English star, she was uh, she had a working class background. She was, you know, born and raised in London. Um, Julie Christie uh, was actually born in India, um, spent her childhood there, and then came to England and was very much promoted as a London-based star. So Valerie Hobson was born in Ireland, uh, but she was actually born to English parents and she only lived there till she was about five or six. But the fan magazines, you can really kind of see how exciting it is to have a non-English star by the ways in which fan magazines in her early career really grabbed onto that. So, for example, Picture Show uh, in 1937, they call her the girl with the Irish eyes Mm. and they talk about her in relation to Irish folklore how she kind of conjures images of all these kind of Irish tunes. And um, it's really interesting to see that. how And the press books do the same. They call her, you know, an Irish star, for example. So you can kind of really see this early in her career. That starts to change kind of by, you know, um, the early 40s, 
um, it starts to focus more on her as an English star. Um, but it's it's really fascinating to see how they grabbed onto this and tried to kind of fix it on this, you know, sense of Ireland as being exotic. Mm. It makes her an exotic British star. And, you know, because so many of the stars were from England, you know, I think that's really interesting. This idea of the diverse British star is really fascinating. When Even today, when we consider how many, you know, actors have to be kind of from London or around mm. that area in order to even gain a career in, in film and TV. You know, it's all about kind of having a certain accent and having the privilege to be able to live freelance, you know, live with yeah. parents who live in the area, that kind of thing. I agree. There's definitely sort of a, a certain demographic. I think if you delve into the, the Wikipedia pages of many British actors, you will find um, people with, I like to think of them as hyperlinked parents, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but do you see that the career of someone like Valerie in the 40s and the 50s in the British industry had a lasting impact going forwards in the development of British stardom? Yeah, um, so Valerie actually retired in uh, 1954 when she married John Perfumer. So she was in a play in 1953 in The King and I. She played Anna in London. And she, then she retired from acting. Now, Valerie Hobson, um, there was an exhibition in the mid-80s, which was um, a National Portrait Gallery exhibition, and it was all about British stars of, of the screen. And so it listed a, a number of stars, and Valerie Hobson was actually included in this. Mm. Um, there's a still of her and Alistair Sim in Kind Hearts and Coronets, which was one of Valerie's biggest films. She kind of had a flair for comedy. Um, so this is... this picture of her was included in the exhibition and then when the exhibition was launched Valerie was one of the stars who attended and helped you know like kind of opened the exhibition you and so she's been used still to promote this kind of sense of what is British stardom mm. and there was a number of other stars too aside from that Valerie's career has largely been dismissed you know she's not kind of thought of as much and as for example maybe Margaret Lockwood for example mm. or James Mason or Vivian Lee, you know, who who made a huge career in, in Hollywood. And so there's this kind of idea of, you know, do stars have to make it successful in Hollywood mm. in order to still be remembered? Do you see this as almost a, a small tragedy of history that she's been overlooked? I get the impression that you're very attached to Valerie. You feel that actually she is one of the great film stars of, the, of this golden age of cinema. Absolutely. I think Valerie is a fantastic actress. And, you know, it, the thing is now, she was married to um, John Profumer, that was her second husband, mm. who had an affair with Christine Keeler, a teenage girl. And, you know, it's kind of the scandal of that affair when he was a politician. This is the way in which Valerie is often remembered by, right. you know, the public now. You know, there's been um, a film called Scandal and also a TV series called The Trials of Christine Keeler, which, you know, present Valerie as a, as a star performed by somebody else. You know, she's kind of seen as a wife of John Perfumer. Okay. Um, and so it's a real kind of tragedy in that sense in that that's how she's remembered. Mm. That's how she's remembered by the public in relation to this kind of scandal and not for the fantastic work she contributed to British cinema history. And also all the fan magazine articles, you know, she started writing articles mm. during the 1940s, a huge number of articles on fashion, for example, and all her war work. So that's kind of how she's, um, you know, that's kind of largely been overlooked. 
Mm. And that's what I would love to rectify in my PhD chapter on her. Mm. That is actually a perfect ending point, but I, I do want to ask you one more thing before we go, because you mentioned about fashion there. And um, I'm told um, by you, but as the expert, but I am told that um, she was known as the best dressed film star of her period. Yeah, so Valerie was, um, there's an article in, uh, I think it's 1941. This is very early in kind of her British career. Mm. Um, and she's, the article is called The Life of Valerie Hobson. And it's a fan magazine article. And it says in that, that Valerie is often known or often referred to as the best dressed star. And so this is really interesting in two ways, because we see kind of the use of the word star, mm. which, you know, is used a lot to to refer to Valerie, even in these early career fan magazine articles. And so we can kind of assume her sense of stardom, her status as a star because of this. But then also, you know, the idea of her being the best dressed. You know, there's a lot of photography about which feature her in really, you know, glamorous, beautiful clothing. Um, There's an article in the late 1940s by Enid O'Neill in Picture Goer, which talks about the Sunday Pictorial Garden Party, where a huge number of stars attended. And Enid O'Neill, who wrote about fashion in in Picture Goer, um, she refers to kind of Valerie's outfit, and there is a portrait of her included, and she kind of describes the clothing that she's wearing. Mm. So Valerie, after this point, she then started to kind of contribute articles with Enid O'Neill on how to dress well. Okay. She became the fashion commentator for Picture Goer. And so she was writing these articles with Enid O'Neill, advising the reader how to dress well. And this is really interesting, especially during the post-war when Britain was still rationing, um, instructing readers on how they could still, you know, how they could still put style at the centre of their, you know, their life, their image. You know, mm. they can still continue dressing the way they want to whilst undergoing no whilst the country was still rationing and then a really interesting note in one of the fan magazines and i absolutely love this was because of this rationing valerie actually used her own clothing as costumes for a film she was in called the voice of merrill and so it's really interesting that she in a sense then takes on the role of the wardrobe department Mm. she then had to use her clothes again for a film called background and what What's really interesting is they noted how one of the films was a summer film. So, you know, what would she do about the next film? Right. When she, you know, she'd already used her clothes for a film. But it said, oh, no, it's okay because that film is set in summer. This film set in winter. So, actually, it's no problem because she can use an entirely different wardrobe. She's covered both sides of her wardrobe now, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it notes that she would also buy items of clothing and accessories and learn them to the studios on a higher charge. Oh, right. So effectively, she's doing this work, you know, the wardrobe department, mm. and she would kind of write, um, she would kind of work with the script writer and, you know, this kind of department in order to look at the script and think, what do we need for the film? And so it's really interesting how she then has some agency over how she looks in the film, mm. which is, you know, not something a film star would necessarily get to do on the film. So she's fascinating as a star because... Her image is promoted very much as a British film star. So we can see through these objects in the archive how she actually was, you know, her image was being promoted, but she also had so much agency as a film star. Mm. 
She sounds incredibly prolific. I think I wasn't aware that she also, obviously she was a brilliant writer in these magazines, not to mention that she's slowly encroaching on the jobs of the wardrobe department, it sounds like. <laughs> um, and also with this, um, her broader work sort of for the domestic war effort as well. She sounds like an incredibly prolific figure, incredibly interesting. Absolutely. Thank you for talking to me about Harry Hobson, someone who before this I admit I knew very little about. And that is exactly why my chapter fights for justice for Valerie. My justice PhD. for Valerie. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading it probably in book form in a couple of years' time too then. Fab. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charting History Podcast. This has been the story of Valerie Hobson, featuring Jade Evans and myself, Graham Moore. If you want to talk about this episode and keep in touch with us here at the Charting History Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at ChartingHistPod. That's at ChartingHistPod. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Charting History as well, where we'll be talking to Jean-Marc Hill about British sailor culture and the portrayal of Jack Tar in 18th century caricatures. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.